HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest, my guest today is uh, Harold Mackey, who is a world-famous food scientist and author of On Food and Cooking, which has influenced many chefs and home cooks since it was published in 1984. Hello, Harold. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Akio. Um, so according to your website, uh, CuriousCook.com, you write about the science of food and cooking, such as where our fruits come from, what they are, what they are made of, how cooking transforms them, and how to enjoy them. So how did you start this fascinating job? <laughs> uh, completely by accident. So I started out um, wanting to be a professor of English literature. Wow. And uh, studied and got my degrees and taught for a couple of years. Um, but I wasn't able to find just the right job, mm. uh, one that would give me the, the possibility of tenure. Mm. And uh, meanwhile, I was recently married, and my wife had her career to think about, and she wanted to know what was going on with my <laughs> teaching. And I said, well, not so much, so why don't you get a good job, and I'll try to do something portable. And writing about the science of food turned out to be the portable thing that I chose first. Mm. And uh, it was it worked well enough that I stuck with it. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Right. But it's, you know, but you cannot just like wake up in the morning and let's go think about the food science, especially from English literature. Yes. So, so before I studied literature, I did study science. 
and um, wanted to be an astronomer. So I've uh, my path has taken some some funny turns along the way, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought about writing about the science of food as a way to kind of recoup my investment in science, mm-hmm. and write about something that was much more everyday. So astronomy is about sort of the nature of the universe, <laughs> and this was more what happens in your kitchen every day when you get home from work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't sure that there was a lot of information about that subject, but I soon discovered that there was. Mm-hmm. It's just that no one really knew about it except uh, professionals in food technology. Okay. And so I thought my job would be to translate the literature on food technology mm-hmm. into the kitchen. Right, because everybody has kitchen questions. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Right, and uh, so you have now uh, three publications, and the first one is on food and cooking, that was published in uh, 1984 and it revised in 2004, and the second is the Curious Cook, uh, More Kitchen Science and Lore, and the third one, Keys to Good Cooking, a guide to making the best food, uh, best of foods and recipes. So, mm-hmm. what is the theme of each book, and uh, what our listeners can learn from it? Well, the the first one on food and cooking, which is, um, as you say, revised in 2004, uh, is kind of encyclopedic. So it's about a thousand pages long, and I try to uh, explain what most ingredients that people in in uh, the United States would come into contact with. What what are they? Uh, how do we use them? How do they behave in the kitchen? And um, that kind of thing. So it's a sort of uh, information about the background of ingredients and cooking techniques. Right. I actually own the revised version and it's about 900 pages and you find everything you think of. <laughs> very impressive. In, including a lot of Japanese ingredients too. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I uh, the first time around, I didn't pay that much attention actually to uh, uh, the the traditions of other cultures. When I revised it, that's something that was at the top of my priority list was making sure to look at uh, mm-hmm. cuisines in Asia and South America. Uh, right. Yeah. It must be a lot of work because the that you know like thirty years in between. 20 years in between, that must be really a lot of progress in terms of American people's knowledge and curiosity about food. That's exactly right. Yeah, the the uh, American public had gotten so much more interested in food, and then at the same time, um, they were becoming f- more familiar by traveling and so on, and the food scientists were doing a lot more work, and so what we knew about different things got deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. So yes, it was uh, it was quite quite a, a labor, but a labor of love. <laughs> right, and the second book, the the curious cook, more kitchen science and lore. Yes, and that that's a very short book. I didn't want to do another very, very long one right mm-hmm. away. And it's a book of experiments. Uh, so when I was doing the first book, I realized that uh, food scientists and food technologists had not really answered all of the questions that come up in a home or a restaurant kitchen. Mm. And so there were many questions I still had. And so I went into the kitchen and started to do my own experiments to mm. try to understand what was going on. And a Curious Cook is the story of those experiments uh, okay. to, to help cooks understand that if they have questions, 
uh, they can answer them themselves just by thinking a little and doing a couple of, uh, well, the way I like to put it is you can play with your food, mm. which our parents always told us not to do. But you can actually, <laughs> you can learn a lot when you play. Right. And I have uh, some uh, examples from the book. Uh, does searing meat really sell in juices? The answer is no. And how much oil can you uh, emulsify into mayonnaise with one egg yolk, gallons? And why does frying sputter end up on the inside surface of the cook's eyeglasses? Gravity. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and the third one, the keys to good cooking. And that's uh, the most practical book that I've done. So it's uh, instead of explaining why things are the, the way they are or what, what they are, uh, it explains how to do things. Okay. Um, and uh, so it's just lots and lots of information about the, the, uh, how to make particular dishes and what the best choices are when you have choices. Mm, so you have uh, one chunk of meat and what, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do. So you yeah. go to the, that guidebook. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. And you also had a column in New York Times for five years called uh, The Curious Cook, which I was always looking forward to reading. Uh-huh. So what was it? Uh, well, it was uh, kind of more of the same in the experimental vein uh, from, from the book that I wrote called Curious Cook. So mm-hmm. it's uh, the editor asked me to uh, just... Uh, continue those kinds of investigations, sort of look into things that people wonder about or maybe haven't wondered about uh, mm. that have interesting aspects to them, and then write a, a, a thousand words every month. Mm, okay. Yeah, I think uh, that kind of inspired people to think about food more scientifically. That was my impression. Uh-huh. Right. So what is your motivation uh, for you to educate people about food science? Well, uh, basically because I think it's really cool. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's useful because the more you understand about uh, anything, the more you can control what you're doing, the better job you can do. And that's true if you're a painter or a, uh, a mechanic or an engineer. Uh, so there's that basic level. The, the more you understand, the better you can do things. But also I think it's just fascinating because we... Uh, food is such an important part of our lives, both for nourishment but also for pleasure. Mm. And so understanding where these things come from and how different cultures have taken the same material and found such different ways to make them delicious, mm. I think that's just cool. Right. And uh, now the food science is becoming more and more important, and not just for chefs but home cooks. So why do you think this trend came? Uh, well, I, I think it's... Um, uh, part of uh, a much larger trend, which is the general interest in food. So I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s when, of course, there was food, but it was all kind of the same and not that interesting. And we weren't really, I grew up in the Midwest, we didn't really have much in the way of uh, ethnic foods. And um, I think it was in the 70s that people really began to realize that there was this wonderful world out there uh, (laughs) that they could be enjoying. And their interest in food science, I think, came along with that. It's, It's part of the fascination with the diversity of ingredients there are and the diversity of styles of cooking. Mm. Um, And then cooks started to do more interesting things Mm. and they needed to understand better uh, what the ingredients can do in order to to be creative. Mm. So I think it was lots of different things all 
basically having to do with the fact that we, as a as a planet, rediscovered how f- interesting food is. Mm. And also the TV media, like Food Network, and those. And I think also the you know the Spanish new Spanish cuisine, uh, molecular gastronomy. Maybe that's a another big push. I I think that's true. There there's one chef um, in Spain who became famous for his innovation, which had never been true before. Mm-hmm. Chefs were known for their skill in making traditional dishes of one kind or another, or making kind of minor. Uh, uh, creative moves within a, a framework that was very familiar, mm. like French cooking. Uh, and then uh, Ferran Adria comes along and says, I'm going to do things that you've never seen before, and I'm going to do something different every year. Mm. And that really got people's attention. Right. And uh, now uh, let's talk about Japanese food. So on this show, we talked about many traditional Japanese food items, but we have not discussed them scientifically. So um, first, what is umami? Uh, umami is a taste that was only uh, confirmed to be a taste very recently, like 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, And it's a long and interesting story, but basically until the turn of the 20th century, we thought, most people thought we had four tastes, sweet, Mm. sour, salt, and bitter. And then a Japanese scientist uh, working in Tokyo discovered that there was uh, something in kombu, uh, in seaweed, that he thought made a different taste altogether. Mm. And uh, again, to make a long story short, it took 100 years for the rest of science to catch up with him Mm. and agree that 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 was the case. Okay. Yeah, people tend to think that uh, umami is only in Japanese food, but it's found in tomatoes, parmigiano, and potatoes, mushrooms, everything, Western. Yes, uh, well, lots of things Western, and and uh, it. I think that's part of the reason that it was a Japanese uh, scientist who discovered mm. umami because something like Parmesan or tomato is it's such a complicated flavor. It's got acidity, it's got saltiness, it's got fruitiness. Uh, uh, in the case of cheese, uh, all kinds of other things, animal flavors going on, mm. whereas uh, broth made from seaweed. Is just a broth made from seaweed. It's it's uh, you can pick out mm. the the taste of umami much more easily right. in something as simple as that. Mm, it's more and pure form of umami. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so I heard uh, also the umami enhances saltiness, sweetness. So that's why parmigiano gets even more tasty, and uh, I think kind of dashi. Uh, the, the kombu is used to enhance other foods' flavors. Yeah, so in, in the case of many of the Western foods that have umami, um, they're fermented. So, and, and what happens in that process is that the proteins are broken down into their uh, building blocks, which mm. are amino acids, and glutamate is one of those. And so milk... Isn't, doesn't have much umami flavor, but you ferment it and let the proteins break down for a year, and now all of a sudden you've got a lot of uh, glutamate and a lot of umami. Mm. Yeah. Right. And uh, I heard there are many different kinds of umami from different sources. Uh, for instance, uh, mushroom and kombu has different kinds of umami. So what kinds of umami exist? Uh, so uh, it turns out that umami is... Uh, a somewhat complicated flavor because there are three different groups of chemicals 
and all flavor, by the way, is chemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not saying anything bad to say that there are three groups of chemicals. Right. Um, there's uh, glutamate, MSG, which everyone's heard of. Uh, but then there are two other groups uh, uh, with scientific names. One of them tends to be found more in sh um, seafood and mm -hmm. shellfish and things like that, scallops and mm -hmm. oysters and things. And then the other group tends to be found in mushrooms. Okay. And so because they're three different things, they can uh, complement each other. They can synergize with each other. Mm -hmm. And so just MSG by itself will have one level of umami, but then if you add mushrooms or if you add scallops, mm -hmm. uh, then all of a sudden it, get, it gets boosted by several times. Okay. So what's the example of the... So, the, you know, the one... Um, Lot and found in shellfish. That's a uh, succinic acid. Uh, there's that and inosinic acid as well. Yes. Okay. Uh -huh. Right. And uh, so, the, what's the combination like? You know, you you can create the synergy. For instance, what kind of food? Well, uh, so um, kombu is actually a, or a dashi is a great example because mm -hmm. you start with kombu, which has lots of glutamate. And then you add to it katsuobushi, which is fermented fish, mm. and it's got lots of uh, inosinates. And uh, so the combination is, um, is much more mm. mouth-filling and much more uh, delicious than just kombu. Right. Right. So traditionally in Japan, I, that's naturally people combine kombu and bonito uh, and so dried fish also. So yes. that, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And also I heard uh, like the, you know, mirapoa and beef, kind of beef stew. That's also another example of the synergy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's a, a little bit different. Mushrooms will provide that. Mirapoa, yeah, the, the mushroom part of mirapoa will, uh, mm. will contribute uh, uh, something different than the beef itself can contribute. Okay. That's right, yeah. Right. And the longer aged the beef is, the mm -hmm. better, because again, the, you break down the proteins and get the, the building blocks. Mm. Okay. And uh, as I said earlier, so the aging or fermenting the food can increase the amount of umami. So um, I was thinking of miso. And well, as I found the data, so the 100 grams of tomatoes contain 246 milligrams of uh, the glutamate. Uh -huh. And if it's dried, uh, dried tomato contains 648 milligrams in 100 grams of dried tomatoes. So uh -huh. That's really like uh, tripled. Right? Yeah, right. that's that's uh, concentration. That's why dried things of all kinds, kombu, katsubushi, mm -hmm. tomato, mushrooms also. Right. When you dry them out, you basically get rid of all the water. And mm -hmm. so all the flavorful things get that much more concentrated. Uh, okay. Right. So same as uh, aged parmesan and parmigiano cheese because it's concentrated. Exactly. When you make cheese, uh, the first step really is to make curds and whey. Uh, so you coagulate some to make the curds, and then you remove the whey, and the whey is all the extra liquid. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So um, now the same way, uh, aged product, that's miso, which is a essential flavoring in Japanese cuisine. So what is it, and how is it made? So things like uh, miso and soy sauce and sake, to me, these are just miracles. They're, uh, they're just amazing. <laughs> uh, 
um, preparations that were discovered back when no one knew anything really about uh, what exactly is going on. And then it turns out that what's going on is really complicated and interesting. But basically what you do to make miso is you start with soybeans Mm -hmm. and you start with separately um, a batch of rice. And you uh, encourage to grow on the rice a particular kind of mold, Mm. uh, a little bit like the mold that uh, makes blue cheese, except it's a very specific uh, Mm. um, mold for for these kinds of processes. So you get the mold growing on the rice, which uh, uh, lets the mold grow very quickly. And then you cook the soybeans, uh, soak them and steam them, and then you mix the rice with the mold mm. together with the soybeans and you basically let it sit for a long long time mm-hmm. and over that time the mold um, does that breaking down process it okay. starts with the proteins which is a, are big molecules starches which are big molecules mm. and breaks them down into their building blocks which are really full of flavor and mm. really delicious right and also i heard the soybeans uh, then themselves are very high in umami in the first place. So miso is a umami-rich food. Yes. Right. And, uh, you know, some miso have um, dark colors. So that's, I heard, from a Maillard reaction. Yes. Uh, so there are uh, lots of different kinds of uh, miso, and each one is made in a slightly different way. And if you make miso at uh, very cool temperatures for a long, long time, then it stays um, relatively pale Mm. and has a kind of delicate, fruity flavor. Mm. But if you raise the temperature so that you're doing the fermentation at something more like a hot summer day in Brooklyn, Mm. uh, (laughs) then it's hot enough for... Uh, because you're doing it for such a long time, a a form of cooking takes place. So when we cook something in a frying pan at a very high temperature, very quickly it turns brown. Mm. If you you cook something at at 100 degrees Fahrenheit for months, Mm. you get the same kind of browning happening. And so that's why the the higher temperature misos are darker. Mm. And sometimes dark, I, I, I sense more toastiness. Yes, the, so the flavor changes just as it does in the frying pan. You know, mm. It's the difference between a boiled food and a fried food is that wonderful layer of browned flavor, mm. and you get the same, same thing in, in miso. So the flavor in miso gets uh, much more complex than just providing umami. Okay. It provides all kinds of uh, wonderful flavors. Right. Yeah. So our listeners can maybe basically look at the color of miso, and they, they can imagine... If it's lighter, it's more fruity, and it's darker, it's more toasty. Yes, muddy. yes. Uh-huh. Right, okay. And uh, I have a question about MSG, which is known as artificial version of umami, you know, in the general term. And it's also known as the cause of Chinese restaurant syndrome, in which uh, I heard a distressing sensations of burning pressure and a chest pain suddenly strike susceptible people who begin a Chinese meal with MSG-laden soup. <laughs> is it dangerous to use artificial MSG? Because, for instance, uh, when I grew up, uh, Ajinomoto, which is a granulated form of MSG, was always at the dinner table. So it's kind of scary to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Ajinomoto was uh, developed, in fact, by the scientist who discovered uh, mm. umami in 1908. Right, uh, Mr. Kikunai Ikeda. Yes, right. yes. 
Um, and um, basically what he did was he said, this is the active ingredient in seaweed that makes this wonderful flavor. Uh, but seaweed tastes like seaweed also. So what if you would like to add that flavor to something where you don't want seaweed flavor? So mm -hmm. what he did was he made a purified version, just like table salt is a purified version of um, of seawater. Mm. Uh, he just concentrated the important part of it and then gives it to you as an alternative to using kombu or miso or whatever uh, more complex form of umami you might choose to use. So it's, it's just another uh, form to get that taste. And uh, many, many, many uh, hundreds of studies have been, been done all over the world about the health effects because it is such a common uh, ingredient in processed foods. So every country wanted to know, is this okay? Are we <laughs> killing our citizens? And every study um, uh, has has come up with the answer, no. It's, it's in the amounts that we have it in the food, uh, it's very innocuous. In fact, it's a part of our own bodies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds like uh, I can live. Oh. Yes. <laughs> okay, right? Yes. <laughs> right. All right. Um, so uh, now let's take a, take a quick break here. And uh, when we come back, uh, we'll talk about kokumi. That's the sixth taste after umami. So please stay with us. And this break song is called One Summer's Day by Kido. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Harold Mackey, who is a world-famous food scientist and author of On Food and Cooking, which has influenced many chefs and home cooks since it was published in 1984. So we've been talking about umami, but I read your 2012 article about kokumi, which is the additional to the five basic tastes. Uh, taste sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami. So it's a sixth taste. So what is it? <laughs> well, uh, after umami was confirmed to be uh, another taste very recently, then taste scientists began to ask the question, hmm, I wonder if there are other tastes that we haven't been aware of, that we haven't been paying attention to. And so they began to look for um, aspects of food that, that gave you a sensation that wasn't one of the tastes that we already know. And one of them that they came up with, uh, again in Japan, um, is a taste that they've called kokumi, which is um, 
sometimes described more as a kind of feeling in the mouth mm -hmm. uh, rather than a taste like saltiness or, or acid. And it's a feeling of um, kind of fullness and also a feeling that the flavors of the food last in your mouth longer mm. than they do without these components of right. the food. So that time element normally is never captured by words in, in the past. <laughs> right. So what kind of a food has kokumi? Well, it turns out that um, the uh, compounds that they have found that have kokumi effects are kind of relatives of glutamate, uh, MSG. But instead of being just one building block, they're two or three mm. put together. Uh, so again, they're breakdown products from proteins, uh, which means that the same foods that tend to have um, a lot of umami also tend to have a lot of kokumi. So mm. tomatoes and um, um, cooked things of various kinds, fermented foods of various kinds, miso, mm. uh, Parmesan cheese, uh, same same suspects, right. same usual <laughs> group of, of foods, but a slightly different uh, aspect to their flavor. Mm. So I, you know, the, the article I found, uh, you tasted a tomato sauce, cheese-flavored potato chips, butter cookies, and cinnamon cookies, and chocolate. So which one was most prominent in Kokumi? <laughs> it was actually the, the broth, uh, I think because it was the simplest. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, because, and I think uh, the, the sweet things, I didn't notice the, mm. the effect so much. Mm. Um, but because this is something that, that people have only just begun to explore, it may be that uh, there are four or five building block long uh, mm. things that will have similar or, or uh, complementary effects. Okay. Right. So it may not be independent. It has to be with other taste elements. That's right. Yes. Mm, interesting. Uh, yeah. Right. Which, which, by the way, is also true of uh, umami. Umami by itself, if you just have... A little water with, and it's an experiment people can do. It's very easy, just a little water with a little bit of uh, MSG in it. It doesn't taste very good, but mm. if you add a little salt and a little bit of um, uh, lemon juice or something like that, then it starts to get very nice. Ah, okay. <laughs> right. So it's enhanced and enhances. Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. And uh, now I think there's another umami food in Japanese cuisine, which is natto. And we had a guest who makes natto in New York, in New York before, so whose name is Anu Yonetani, and she actually mentioned your name because you like her natto. So what is uh, natto? And uh, you know, I mean, because it has a very distinctive smell, loved or hated, and it's very <laughs> gooey. So where does the smell and the stickiness come from? Yeah. So it's, it's a bit like miso in that you start with soybeans, but it's very, very different. Uh, the, the biggest difference is that you use a different microorganism to ferment the mm. natto, and it only takes a, a day or so uh, at a relatively high temperature rather than months and months and months, which is what uh, miso takes. Mm. So you steam um, soybeans, and then you inoculate them, uh, that is, mix them with a culture of uh, a natto organism, uh, which is a, a bacterium, not a mold. Mm. Um, and then you keep the, you, you wrap the, the mixture and you keep it nice and warm, kind of body temperature mm. for a day or so. And then when you come back, 
these beans that were once just like uh, ordinary cooked beans have now gotten really sticky and gooey on the outside and they've turned brown and they have this very interesting, to me anyway, uh, aroma. Mm. And uh, so what the microorganism has done, the bacillus, is to, um, again, break down some of the proteins in the soybeans. And soybeans are very rich in proteins. Mm. And they've turned some of the protein into the, the sticky stuff that you see, mm. uh, which is a, has a little bit the consistency of egg white. Um, so what you then do to eat it, because you, if you dip your chopsticks in and just kind of pull up, you end up with these long strings. They can be three feet, four feet, mm. uh, however high you can raise the, <laughs> the chopsticks, and that's very difficult to eat. So what you do is you, you mix with your chopsticks uh, maybe a little mustard or scallions or mm. something like that with the, the natto, and you end up making kind of like a meringue. Because mm. the the protein strands uh, trap the bubbles of air, and you end up with this uh, very interesting texture, which is the, the beans themselves, kind of sticky coating, and then mm. this sort of bubbly, um, bubbly stuff as well. Right, and you said uh, that you know that bubbly stuff is uh, the umami. Uh, it it carries some of the the umami. So the the uh, protein strings that make it sticky are made from the same amino acid, glutamic acid that uh, umami comes from. So they're related. But but in those long strings, uh, the umami isn't free, so you don't taste it. Ah, uh, right. Okay. So and you know, like uh, we before the show, we talked that you know not the people's. People think stinky, but we agreed it's a coffee and chocolate toasty taste. Yeah, uh, for for most people and and for most kinds of natto. Again, there are, there are variations, mm -hmm. and I know that uh, Ann Yonatani has experimented with different natto cultures to see which ones have the nicest mm. aromas. So uh, anyway, people who don't like it, who just tried it once, they should try it again. Mm, I agree. <laughs> Right. And uh, so I heard that the Japanese sake has a very unique fermentation process called the multiple parallel fermentation. So you can scientifically explain here. And what is it and uh, how does it affect the taste of sake? Uh -huh. Well, uh, one way to think about it is to compare it with what happens in winemaking. So when you make wine, uh, you start with grapes, which have a lot of sugar, and you add yeast, and you just put it in a barrel and you let it sit. And uh, you don't have to do anything to it. The yeasts turn the sugar into alcohol mm. in a continuous process, and it can get up to maybe 15% alcohol before mm. the yeasts get uh, drunk. Right. And uh, can't, they can't make any more alcohol than than that. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the natural maximum. In the case of making sake, uh, the people who make sake can get to alcohol levels more like 20%, mm. much, much higher. And that's because they do the fermentation very differently. Sake is made from rice, and rice is starchy. It's not sugary the way grapes are. So you have to turn the starches in rice into sugars mm. so the yeasts can make alcohol. Right, versus the uh, grapes always just sugar. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So you have to have uh, basically two fermentations going on to make sake. You have to have a fermentation that turns the starch into sugar mm -hmm. and then a fermentation that turns the sugar into alcohol. 
And if you do that um, in stages, so that you start with one batch of rice, and you have these uh, the the two different cultures, the yeast and the the starch breaking culture, the koji, going at the same time. Uh, then uh, they work together in parallel. So mm. that's where the parallel okay. comes from uh, uh, until they get to a certain level of alcohol. But then if you refresh them by adding another batch of rice and mm. another batch of koji, then the process starts up again, keeps going, and goes to a higher mm. alcohol level. Mm. And if you do it three times, you can get up to about 20%. Right. So that uh, two-step fermentation happens in beer making too, because it's the the grain converted to, you know, the, the starch and grain converted to sugar and then alcohol. So, but in in case of sake, it's in the same at the same time in the same container. So it's kind of like more many things going on, and I heard it makes uh, every taste uh, more complex compared to other beverage. Yeah, and the thing about making something like beer is that uh, there actually is no second fermentation. What you do is you get the grains themselves to break down their own starch ah. into sugar. That's the malting step. And uh, yeah, so making making uh, sake style wines is uh, just a totally different process and gives you totally different results. Mm, okay, and uh, there's a bike product of sake making. It's called sakiwis. So, um, what is it, and how do you use it? Well, so once you go through this fermentation. Um, uh, you're fermenting whole grains of rice. Uh, it's, again, not like wine where you squeeze out the juice and you ferment the juice. In the case of uh, sake, you're fermenting whole rice grains. So when you're done and you uh, take off the liquid, you've got a lot of stuff left over. And the stuff that's left over are the remains of the rice grains, but also yeast cells and uh, fungus cells and just all kinds of stuff. And um, the wonderful thing about uh, the Japanese tradition, nothing goes to waste. Mm -hmm. That's a very rich source of flavor and of acidity. And it's just a very useful material for fermenting other things. For You can coat vegetables, meats, fish with, with uh, sake leaves. And depending on how long you do it, uh, you can preserve them indefinitely mm. or you can just give them a wonderful flavor. Right. So like uh, vegetable pickles or the marinades and fish, traditional. Yeah. Right. And uh, I heard that uh, the sake leaves can lower cholesterol. And uh, that they're rich in vitamin Bs and umami, and there's just so many good, good stuff going on <laughs> in it. And I, I also heard that uh, uh, for kids, you can make a drink. It's sake leaves, but it's not uh, alcohol. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, call it uh, food. So uh, you just uh, put it in a little pot and warm up, and then some sugar. And uh-huh. make a drink. Uh-huh. It's pretty healthy. Ooh, that sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> and you can just uh, put uh, some in miso soup and then make it even more flavorful. Yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, always wonder, you know, the science of uh, ikejime, which is a special technique to make fish tasty. Uh, it's traditional in Japan. And could you explain what it is and how it works? 
Yes. So this is uh, something that I learned about with uh, Dave Arnold, who also has a show on Heritage Radio. Um, and it was brought to our attention by Dave Chang, who wanted to know, mm, yes, uh, how, does this really work? And if so, how? And so we, uh, uh, Dave did most of the um, the digging around. And it turns out that uh, it's, it's not that old a tradition. It, it goes mm. back a few decades. Um, and what it involves is when you catch a fish and it's still alive, uh, what you do instead of uh, killing it in the usual way, and depending on the size of the fish, there are various ways of doing it, but um, you can bleed it, you can cut off the head, you can uh, hit it in the head to, mm -hmm. to knock it out. Um, but in Ikejime, what you do is you take a very thin wire mm -hmm. and you insert it from the end of the tail up the spinal cord mm -hmm. of the fish and you move it around essentially to destroy mm. the spinal cord. And what that does, it turns out, is um, immediately stop any kind of reflex uh, muscle activity mm. that would otherwise be taking place. The fish would be twitching and, and so on. Uh, because uh, the, the nerves are broken, so the fish doesn't know I'm dead. Basically, yes, mm. that's right, and and not just the brain, but the the whole body mm. is now pretty much inert. Mm. And what that does is, um, it it prevents the fish muscle from using up all the fuel that it had stored in itself to, for swimming, which means that essentially the muscle is kind of alive for several days after you mm. uh, actually kill the fish which means that it stays fresh much longer. Um, Japanese tend to like the texture of their fish more firm mm -hmm. than we're used to in, um, in America, and the, f the flesh does stay firm much longer than it does mm. in traditional ways of slaughtering. Right. Well, I heard even uh, chicken and pork farmers, uh, when they slaughter animals, and they suffer the taste really uh, scientifically, you know, taste... Uh, elements go down like so it makes sense yes. and i think the japanese fishermen it's it's a norm you know they don't do i heard they don't do uh, ikejime on every single fish for if it's too small it's, it doesn't, doesn't work it's difficult yeah right but uh majority if you go to tsukiji market you see people doing ikejime uh -huh. too so yeah that's great and uh, i heard uh, some uh, fishermen in this country started to uh, practice ikejime because it sells at a higher price. Yes, mm. yes, uh -huh. right. and it and it really does keep better, so that you know you can you can um, uh, say truck it to a restaurant that's further away and it won't suffer. Mm. Right, and also it's considered to be the fastest and the most humane method of killing fish. I'm not sure about fastest mm. because it is difficult, oh, right. <laughs> but but. Uh, uh, yeah, on on many levels, it's uh, just a, a, a great improvement over the usual. Mm. But uh, is it is it hard for say this country's fishermen or you know some chefs decided to get uh, uh, live fish and do gizme? Is it very difficult? It it takes a while to learn. Yes, because it's uh, you know the end of the spinal cord is a very small. Mm. It's like a, a millimeter across yeah. or something like that, and you have to 
use a very thin wire, and the wire, because it's very thin, it can bend mm -hmm. and then not go in. And <laughs> so uh, uh, it, it just takes some training, mm. like everything. But it's not impossible. Oh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, now I heard that uh, you gave a lecture at the symposium in May 2015 at uh, Ryukoku University in Kyoto, in Japan, and when they launched a new agricultural department. So what's the occasion? And you know, it seems that the food science is getting more and more attention globally uh, recently. So it seems like Japanese universities started to create a new department focusing on food and food science. Yes, uh, so it was very exciting to me. I, I didn't know anything about uh, Ryukoku University until I received an invitation to attend. Mm -hmm. And at first I didn't think I was the right person because it's a faculty of agriculture and agriculture is uh, it's an aspect of food but, but not something I know a whole lot about. It turns out that the agriculture, the faculty of agriculture uh, was designed in this new program to include not just agriculture, but food science, food te technology, uh, dietetics, uh, plant breeding, animal breeding. Wow. And what they decided to do, because they were building it from scratch, was to put all these different programs into the same building mm. and the same department. And uh, it was just very exciting to see all these separate disciplines that usually don't talk to each other mm. and just kind of operate in their own bubble, um, collaborating with each other and lab, uh, labs and kitchens are right next to each other mm. <laughs> in this um, university. So it's, I think, a very exciting model for the future for mm. how to really study food in an integrated way. Sounds like uh, the whole department covers the food chain of Everything that that was their ambition, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, what uh, did you talk about at the, the symposium? Well, basically about how unusual this is. Uh, I talked a bit about the history of food science as a discipline and how, for a long time, it was just kind of its own separate um, bailiwick, uh, really only existing to help the food industry, mm -hmm. not to help. Um, consumers at large, not to help restaurants or home chefs, home cooks. Um, it was very specific and very narrow. And the wonderful th um, thing that this program represents is a kind of broadening and opening up of the vision to mm. realize that whether you're called a food technologist or a dietitian or an agriculturalist, you're all working on food. And so you should all be colleagues and work with each other. Mm. Interesting. And have you seen similar programs in any place in the world? No. That's that's the amazing thing, is that they they had no food program to speak of to begin with, and mm. they thought food is a very important aspect of our world. We need to do something. And they kind of thought from the very basics, if we're going to do this right, how should it look? What should it do? And they came up with this vision and they've realized it. And it's mm. really impressive, and I hope it'll be a model for the rest of the world. Hi. Okay. And it uh, seems like the food science is becoming kind of more formalized to be studied. Well, uh, I would say actually maybe a little bit less formalized. You know, it's, it's less food science with a capital F, capital S, uh. and more 
study of food that even if you're not a scientist, you can appreciate aspects of the science and apply them in if you're a cook or if you're a dietitian or if you're a plant breeder, uh, make something delicious and not just something that's uh, productive. Mm. Um, that's the exciting right. thing is the the combination of perspectives. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's more approachable. Even I can think of it. <laughs> right. And you give us the answers. So. <laughs> right. Okay, so thank you for joining us today, Harold. And please come back. My pleasure, Akiko. Thank you so much. So, uh, listeners, if you'd like to know more about Harold's work, please visit uh, curiouscook.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. And by the way, we just launched a beautiful new website, so please visit our page. And Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org and iTunes and iTunes podcast. I'm sorry.、Um, today's show was made possible by Santori, and our engineer is Jack Kingsley. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.